Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the 1984 film directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Willard Huck and Gloria Katz. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Anam Shivai. And Alex Kayaros. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to part two of our trek through the Indiana Jones series. I'm excited to talk about this because it's very different from Raiders of the Lost Ark and just kind of like Indeed. Mm-hmm. dive right in. I don't think I have seen Temple of Doom in maybe like 15 years, like maybe like as we talked about in the previous episode, it wasn't the one I watched a lot as a kid. I remembered vaguely like a hand going into somebody's chest and pulling out a heart. I remembered a rope bridge scene that for some reason I feel like I always see on TV when I'm visiting my mom. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's like the, the association I have for that scene. And the musical number opening it. And basically besides that, I remembered nothing about this movie. So it was really fascinating to go on the ride again and... Watching all these movies back to back to back, also, it, it, there's like even greater whiplash because so much of uh-huh. what Raiders is is not in Temple of Doom. And we'll talk about this in the next episode, but Raiders and Last Crusade are like super similar. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. And, and there are things about Raiders that like I didn't love. So like I wasn't necessarily sad to see all of that go, but it was just really interesting to go on this other Indiana Jones adventure. It's a prequel. It starts with a musical number. It's super dark. It's in a different place. It's like there's mm-hmm. so much that's different. No Nazis. And there are no Nazis, which is always sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always sad, you know. You need somebody to kill in your movies and so if they're not here. Anyway, so yeah, Temple of Doom. Brian, we're going to start with you. I want to start with you because we know that this, as you talked about in the last episode, was the one that you watched over and over again as a kid. So what was it like revisiting it? And how do you feel about, like, do you have an adult brain version that's separate from your kid brain version? What do you make of this experience? Yeah, I really, I really can't separate it. This is one of the few movies where I'm just genuinely not interested in whether or not it's good. Because I just don't care. It's <laughs> just like I, I, every, everything about it just, just like brings me childhood joy. Even if I can separate, like have an out of, out of body experience and sort of have my brain go like, well, this is really stupid. Like I just tweeted today about just the opening number, like how it's like so bad, but I just still love it anyway. <laughs> The musical sequence, they go into like a door and then they're just in some other universe. Yeah, like, wait, I don't know what the hell is happening. I was so confused when they revealed that it, like that place doesn't exist right. at the end of the number. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, I am, I am here to, to spread joy about this movie and also not disagree with anything negative you guys have to say about it because I don't, I don't, I'm not going to defend it as much as it's just a movie that I just loved as a kid. And it, it definitely just brings back all that, all that. There are things about this movie I really do like from a, I could watch this in a, in a vacuum separated from my nostalgia and really appreciate it. And we'll get into that later. But for the most part, it's just, I get to revisit, 
a thing that I that I watched over and over as a kid, and that just makes me happy. Cool, that's good. And I'm I want to go on record saying that I support that, and that <laughs> you can enjoy things that are bad, and you can like things that are, or you can dislike things that are good. Like you know, there's there's different ways to experience it. And I feel like to go through all these movies and to love these movies, you have to be okay with a little bit of silliness and badness and cheesiness and plot hole, like all that stuff. So, um, cool. Yes. Okay. Well, so Trisha, as the indie indie lover amongst Mm us, as you mentioned also in the last episode, haven't seen Temple of Doom a lot. So what was it like watching it now? And what do you... I mean, man, I really went in this time determined to find a way to like this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I love Indiana Jones. I can do it. There's gotta be good stuff in here that uh, like, I'm sure there are good action sequences that I just, you know, don't haven't fully appreciated and, and need to re-experience. And you know what? I did find something that I really like about this movie which is that I would argue this is the hottest Harrison Ford movie of all of the three Indiana (laughs) Jones films. Maybe of all time. I mean, just Harrison Ford. (laughs) He is gorgeous. I do not know why he got so ripped for this movie or what happened. Well, he has his shirt off a lot. So I think it just, they actually just take his clothes away and never give them back to him basically, (laughs) which is the right move to be frank. So anyway, but so that I appreciate about this film. And he's also great in it as always. But this is a bad movie. And it, that doesn't, I just want to say that. And it also doesn't make me mad or upset or like Indiana Jones any less. I just think that you can look at Temple of Doom and go like, we missed and feel okay about that. And actually, I remember walking out of Crystal Skull and the experience of watching Crystal Skull. And the people I was with, I'm sure they were family, friends, maybe. I can't remember who exactly. Probably a, a large collection of people because I love, you know, going to see movies like that. With walking out groups. after the movie had ended or like during Correct. the movie? Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Just be clear. Okay. Just when everybody Fair got question. off the middle of the movie. <laughs> okay, we're just like, peace. Never mind. We all um, agree as a theater, right? Let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> Protest. No, at the end, I, I just remember people being like mad about the experience of watching Crystal Skull. And at that time, my reaction was, but if you're okay with Temple of Doom being indie canon, you kind of have to be okay with Crystal Skull to an extent. Like, as someone who loves a lot of bad James Bond movies, but I accept them as being James Bond movies and, you know, love them kind of in their own way for being a part of the the conglomerate of a thing that I really love overall. That's kind of how I feel about Temple of Doom. It is not a good movie. You know, there are lots of bad movies in this world that are associated with things that we really, really love. And overall, it's a net gain for cinema. And mm-hmm. so... This that is how I feel about <laughs> Temple of Doom, and I'm so excited to talk to you guys more about it. There's lots to unpack. I'll insert a quick mini argument, which is I think the difference between Temple of Doom and Crystal Skull is that Temple of Doom is an '80s movie, and Crystal Skull right. came comes out after Casino Royale and Batman Begins and Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? Like right. I think that's the big difference. It's like you can't make a movie doing the same stuff you did 30 years ago in, if you're trying to make a movie that's like for a present day audience. We'll get into it in a Crystal Skull episode, but like there's a huge difference there. Right. 
I feel like that's like the whole thesis of what I'm excited to talk about. And Crystal Skull is, yeah. That's going to be a spicy episode. I can tell. (laughs) Buck your seatbelts. Patrons, get ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. But for, okay. Temple of Doom for now. Cool. Okay. (laughs) It is so hard. Like, there's just so much like connective tissue that like a conversation can start here and well, it'll happen. We'll talk about Crystal Skull. Sign up for Patreon if you want to hear us, I think, argue a lot for this. Okay. But so Alex, Temple of Doom, talk to me about your experience with Temple of Doom this time. I feel like with every one of these episodes is going to be like what Michael said, as far as our experiences of, this, of these movies, because it sounds basically the same. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Last mm-hmm. Crusade was our was our Indiana Jones movie. This was the least watched one. So I I also have not seen this movie in I don't know how many years, maybe since childhood. Like, it, it's been a long time. And a lot of, just like you, Michael, a lot of images were burned in my brain from this movie, but no memory of how they connected or in what order or how Indiana Jones got from here to there. So that was all fun to rediscover and watch kind of with fresh eyes for the first time recently. And it, you know, watching the movie again, as it started, I mean, there's a few experiences (laughs) I had. (laughs) As it started, I had forgotten about the musical number. So really, like I I wrote down in my notes, like I'm speechless. Like, like (laughs) what is happening? Like, like this is going on so long. They actually are like in some like magical Broadway land now in a space that doesn't exist. The entire opening credits are over this number. Yeah. <laughs> Kathleen like Kennedy's a dancer. Yeah. <laughs> is she really? Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> so I was already just kind of in this almost kind of broken mental state after that <laughs> musical. Like what, where am I? And then the opening scene is so goofy as you were saying, Brian, mm. but then it, but then I was really, into it because it just kept the momentum just didn't stop it was they just crazy wacky james like old-fashioned james bond shootout you know with crazy maniacal laughing henchmen shooting machine guns (laughs) oh yeah rolling you know the gong gong, into the car yeah onto the plane surprise dan Aykroyd. like right like what is dan Aykroyd doing in this movie for five (laughs) seconds but i remember that but like i i was kind of getting into it when it when it just kept going when now they're now the plane's going down now they're in the raft now the raft is like doing a ski trip down the mountain now the raft is falling <laughs> off a giant cliff now the raft is in the water like it just kept going and i was i was like this is kind of awesome actually this feels almost like the excess of a modern blockbuster of like a right. jungle i haven't mm. seen jungle cruise but i feel like the kind of like obscene non-stop there's nothing but just like impossible action happening continuously for like way too long is a modern blockbuster thing and the beginning of this movie had like the 80s version of it which i was finding kind of delightful and so i was really kind of getting into this movie and then things happen so we'll talk about it (laughs) but but i was surprised by how delighted i was by the Hmm. opening of this movie and i was kind of like this is kind of awesome. Like this is this is absurd. This is ridiculous. But I kind of love that they're just not even trying to be serious here. We're just gonna go for it. Sure. And like, we're in a plane. We're in a raft. We're skiing in a raft. <laughs> we're falling on a raft. We're in the water on a raft. Like let's just do all of it as fast as possible right up front right now. It's like in Black Window, Widow, where they fall for five miles. It's just wow. it's great. But it's Again. actually, I find it more interesting to watch a raft, you know, blowing up. 
itself in midair just in time to land just in time to, like there's more dynamics i guess in there's this. a lot of practical shots too like like yeah. some of the, like obviously there's like close-up raft shots but you know no one's on the raft obviously but like they yeah. they dropped a raft from a plane and they they have some good looking they have some good looking dummies with the proper wigs and stuff <laughs> they have some really bad looking dummies too but sure. we'll get to the minecart chase but, but basically my point is there were like a lot of dynamics in that first like i don't know 20 minutes that were really delightful and fun i wasn't getting bored i wasn't tired of this kind of monotonous ongoing never-ending action it was like incredibly dynamic and goofy and over the top and so i i was pretty much down for this ride and then it slows down and the real story begins and it gets a bit tiresome um so i don't know where to go from there but that was my mm, yeah. fresh experience of this movie and it eventually goes to the extremely dark places i remember as a kid where it starts to <laughs> feel just kind of like mean-spirited and mm, you know mm. and kind of torture obsessed in some scenes and it just feels very different from the rest of the indiana jones universe in that way yeah yeah so i think the 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 opening is really interesting i feel like i was appreciating the musical number much more this time because i knew it was coming (laughs) (laughs) i've lived through the return of the jedi musical number i feel like i can deal with any kind of randomly placed musical number at this point i feel like for me though just like the tone and the setting is so not Indiana Jones in my mind. Okay. And I don't know if that was just as because as a kid, maybe I even watched them out of order. So like seeing Indiana Jones in a like 30s club, not wearing his normal outfit, like felt so weird. But like it it doesn't feel like an Indiana Jones movie to me for a pretty long time. And I think that's one of the bumps that I have in the opening. And then as you meet the characters, I feel like I keep wanting to hold, like, be like, oh, cool. I'm glad you're going to be in this movie and you're going to be in this movie. I'm excited. But none of the characters that you meet (laughs) in that scene, except this time for me, short round, Mm -hmm. are interesting or fun to be around. And it's this weird thing. I mean, we can talk about (laughs) Willie Scott and Kate, Kate Capshaw, who I... Think does an amazing job. Yes. Like her performance Honestly, in this. Yes. Do not confuse Cape Catshaw with Willie Scott because no, no. she is fantastic. Yeah. I actually really like appreciated all of it a lot more this time. Like as a kid, yeah. I was like, this person just won't stop screaming. I'm really annoyed. Like, <laughs> go away. And this time I was like, I felt for Kate Capshaw. I felt like she was doing everything she could. And I I I appreciated her a lot. What a thankless yeah. job. They yeah. gave Kate Capshaw <laughs> in this movie. Like, I just have, I have a lot of thoughts on that character because she's such a huge part of this movie. And I, I really feel like a lot of the decisions that were made around that character color everything else about this movie. Mm-hmm. And part of it is the mean spiritedness that you mentioned, Alex. It's like her character is, was created with so much malice. I can't like, I don't know. (laughs) I, sorry, we don't have to dive into the whole thing right now, but I just, I I really sat and pondered while I was watching it this time around what happened, like what must've happened in the development process that gave us the character of Willie Scott and to what end. And I just, Mm -hmm. I I like would love to get your guys thoughts on that, but we'll circle back to it, but sorry, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, well, yeah, just that, you know, 
again appreciating the performances of the of everything but you know you you you're in the club and Indiana Jones is getting poisoned and he has yeah. a partner that apparently he has a really deep connection to that we meet five seconds before he dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's just a lot of it. It feels attack the clones. E like, mm. I think there are actually several parallels. Like later on, even one of the action <sighs> scenes reminded me of the droid manufacturing plant. Uh-huh. Yep. From it. Uh-huh. I feel like there was a lot of George Lucas happening with this one. And yeah. I don't know there's, you could also just feel that I think the script didn't have the time and care put into it. Mm. That. And, you know, they had to make a sequel. I mean, they, they just made Return of the Jedi. Like, how first of all, how crazy was their lives, like Spielberg and Lucas, that, <laughs> yes. like, they're just like, we're going to make, like, Empire Strikes Back. They're going to make, we're just handing back and forth the, like, two most popular franchises and, like, hanging out while we're doing it. Anyway, so I, I feel like pretty quickly in that opening, the rushed nature of it starts to show itself for me and the lack of any characters to fall in love with takes a toll, which I think Raiders has a lot of. And I think like we were talking a little bit yeah. in the Raiders episode, Marion does a lot of work, I think, as an interesting foil for Indy and what mm-hmm. she brings out of him and is like is fun to just watch her on her own. And Willie, unfortunately, doesn't have, doesn't do either of those things. Indy is still kind of a dick to her. Like, I don't know, just that relationship so much in the script and story seems to like hinge on it. But I feel like there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, Willie Scott, it, she kind of reminded me of, it, in, in Lord of the Rings, in the, in the Two Towers and Return of the King, Gimli kind of becomes more and more like a comic relief character more than maybe mm-hmm. a primarily like a member of the right. fellowship who's like as serious as Legolas or Aragorn. And I felt like Willie Scott was just like comic relief Gimli from the get-go. Like that's all, yeah. that's all she is mm-hmm. really is. She's the one stumbling into the snakes and into the animals and she ate the wrong food and it's disgusting and everything is just kind of a joke with her, which it's fine to have a comic relief character, but also to have it be like the main other character of the entire movie, the love interest, the like the reason Indiana Jones is going to do certain things later on. And the only female. And the only female. Yeah. The annoying thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, yeah, you can't, I feel like that character needs to do more than just be the dumb comic relief character, but it seems like that's all they were able to do with her. Yeah. I think, I talked a little bit in the last episode about how the Indiana Jones movies are purposefully trying to recreate, like it goes beyond homage. They are trying to recreate with er some degree of earnestness, like a bygone genre and playing in archetypes, playing in elements and even like in, you know, construction and things like that from these previous like serials, you know, the 1930s serials. And I talked about how Marion, even though she is this like very likable, scrappy and magnificently played by Karen Allen with dimensionality, like she is a more likable female archetype from the time. She is still essentially kind of a flattened character to a degree, right? Um, I think that... Raiders is kind to her 
And Karen Allen is incredible. And as we mentioned, no fault on the performance of Kate Capshaw here, but there's more to work with in the script of Raiders on yeah. the, for the character of Marion, where you know, she has a backstory. She has a father. She has, you know, who is, she was involved with Indy before she was really young. Now she's like made a life for herself. There's backstory there. There's just like more there like, in character. Like all we know about Willie Scott is that she like really wants the diamond at the beginning. Right. So, <laughs> like it's like, she's a greedy. <laughs> it's like, yes. Well, and I feel like that's for me where, like what you're talking about, Trisha, where she's treated unfairly. Like, yes. I think that's where the, the kick happens for me because I I don't think I would mind someone complaining about all the crazy stuff Indiana Jones gets them into. Like, I identify with her most of this movie. Right. Like, I, I think she has things around me. Yeah. Excellent points. But, <laughs> like, all we know about her character is that she prizes money above everything some of the time. Like, that's all she cares about is, like, (laughs) diamond. Like, I'm going to die. I'm scared. Oh, wait, but there's a diamond, you say? Like, I will blindly follow that. And that just feels... I want to marry the Maharaja I've never met because he has lots of riches. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I feel like there there could have been so much more there, but that that's for me where the, like, the being mean to her starts to... Where I start to feel it. Yeah, they just absolutely didn't invest anything textually in the character to give Kate Capshaw anything to do with it other than what she's like, as you're talking about Alex, the like comedic relief where they just like gave her these lines where it's like, we can cut to Willie looking grossed out. And that was literally all they gave her to do. Mm-hmm. And it's such a disservice to women in this movie, but also it's almost, and I think that this movie runs into this problem a lot it's doing a thing that the serials did so hard, probably as a joke or as like a satire or as like a whatever. But because these films were made with some degree of earnestness, the joke is impossible to perceive. So like the joke is, isn't it funny that women were treated this way in serials as this like damsel in distress who's just here to complain and be an obstacle for the hero? Isn't that funny that that's how women used to be in this kind of entertainment? And yet the joke is lost because there's this sort of like, I think it's what you're talking about with the tone, Michael, where there's this sort of like darkness, but also a general seriousness to the way that everyone else is playing it. She feels like she's in a different movie than everybody else. Mm -hmm. If you can put it that way. And we see this problem sometimes in film and it's just so apparent here. And it's just so disheartening from the very first (laughs) minute where I'm like, you're having her yell about the holes that the like skewer put in the side of her dress. Her her dress is amazing. But even so, (laughs) it's it's like you're having her just shriek like that's all she does in this movie. She is screams shriek. so much. Yeah. She's like, uh, why? Who hurt you? Like, right. I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the problem is, as you were saying, like if they're doing sort of a meta joke of like right. the serials and stuff like that, then that joke needs to be in the text. It can't just be. If you've seen this source material, then you'll get what we're doing here. You need something that is sort of pointing to that. You know, you need the the sort of quick fix version is the Indian village they go to has like a badass female character who's not scared of anything. And she 
And she looks at Willie as like, what's her problem? Like why, you know, whatever. Like where then it's like, okay, we're not saying like, this is women. We're saying like, this is a, a person. But, uh, but I feel like that's, again, it's that problem of, of like when it's your only, and it's, you know, it's not the only female character in this franchise, but it is in this movie. So it's sort of like, you know, there's a lot more to, to, to read from that because, because of that, than if you had, you know, maybe like a, a counter character, like a, you know, a different female character who was just a different person, you know? Sure. Well, yeah, and I feel like the problem runs deep enough that it probably needs even more than that. <laughs> but, yeah, sure, but I'm, yeah, I'm saying but, like the sort of like the band-aidest yeah, yeah. of band-aids. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that the point that you're making is a good one and people should listen to our episode on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on Patreon if they want us to <laughs> talk more about these ideas. Yes, uh, yeah. exactly. Are, are you doing a thing for real because you love it and you think it was good? Mm-hmm. Or are you making fun of it and you think it was bad? Right. And can we tell? Yeah, and can we tell? And is the thing in the text? Yes. What a good question for all filmmakers <laughs> to ask themselves. <laughs> so coming off of this, I think one thing that was interesting is at the time Temple of Doom was being made, George Lucas, in an interview, he was saying, well, each of these movies exists in its own universe, basically, which I think is an interesting concept of, of like, we're taking this character and we're sort of putting them in some other thing so they don't have to connect. They don't have to be like the rules in the first movie, which gives it that serial feel of just like, here's the here's the thing of the week, you know? Yeah. And, and he said, first of all, it's a prequel, so we don't have to explain why Marion's not there. Like he's like that was a main reason to have it be a prequel, and then he's like, and that's also why there's no Nazis, so because it's like it's it's set in its own universe, and then of course after the reaction to this movie, after the critical response, what do they do for Last Crusade? They're like, all right, we need Nazis, we need Sala, we need Marcus, we need, we got to start with <laughs> mm-hmm. Professor Indy, we got to have a desert chase sequence, no magic until the end, a very quiet finale that doesn't, like, they basically were like, okay, forget about all that, th- that stuff we said. We are, we are now building the more, like, cohesive Indiana Jones universe. And usually that would be bad, and we could wait till Last Crusade. Usually it's a bad thing to say, like, oh, we just reused a bunch of ideas but last crusade does it in such a different way that it feels more close to this at this point only three movie franchise whereas temple of doom as you were saying earlier michael just feels like so out of left field you know and i think that i can't imagine because for me like i don't even dislike willie scott because i grew up with her right like she like this is the movie i grew up with so i didn't i didn't have a marion beforehand i can't imagine Mm. like having raiders and then going into the theater and seeing temple of doom and you get the musical number and you get willie scott and you get like just like a bunch of like really goofy cartoony things but for me it's like i come out of it from this other place where i'm like no this is the one i grew up with so now it's like i can appreciate how this is different from the other ones and why people don't like it and stuff like that but for me it's like this is my this is my base understanding of this franchise which is a weird place to come from yeah. Well, in fairness, critics at the time didn't universally hate this movie. Not universally, fact, but... No, actually, plenty. a lot of them really liked it. There were a lot of critics who applauded Spielberg for going in a dramatically different direction and trying something genuinely new and very different. He made, you know, all the things that you mentioned. He made a prequel. He, like, found new villains and, you know, hitting all of these different tones. It's a lot darker a lot of people like that. Critics love it when it's darker. Critics are just like, make it darker. But there were people who really responded to this at the time. 
simply because it was so different and they didn't feel like they were being pandered to, right? It feels like something shocking and unique sort of emerged out of, you know, what was a runaway hit and all that really was required of Spielberg or what would have been the easiest thing to do is to make The Last Crusade next, right? Or something mm-hmm. like it. And he absolutely did not do that. And and there's a certain level of daring that you almost have to take your hat off to. And critics really did at the time. As I said, not all. Re- uh, yeah, reviews, reviews were mixed. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> but, and it had me thinking as I was watching it this time around, is this the last Jedi of the series? No, it's the was, it's the Return of the Jedi of the series. Well, but as as you were talking, but is it? <laughs> as you were talking about this, that was what was coming to mind, which is you you do a second film in a series that takes a left turn from the first uh, installment of the franchise and kind of tries to do its own thing. And I mean, I think they're very different in a lot of ways. And, and of course, like, the, they are. The, the different thing they're doing is very different um <laughs> but but i think similarly i think there were a lot of fans who watched into the last jedi and had probably the same somewhat disorienting feeling that i'm guessing raiders fans had when they walked into temple of doom and it starts off with this opening musical number and it's a james bond movie with kind of you know these cackling villains in this nightclub and he's not wearing the indiana jones uniform uh, so I, I think there probably was a bit of a disorienting thing for Raiders fans, which I I also applaud. And I think that was part of why I was starting to get into this movie on this recent watch through, through that kind of just bananas opening sequence. I was like, you know what? This is great. Like just (laughs) do something, you know, this, you know, your first installment in this franchise was this really well-crafted Lawrence of Arabia esque at times, just kind of classic feeling movie. I kind of love just you're letting your hair down and just we're just doing the wackiest, yep. most gonzo stuff right now. And and I think if the movie, yeah, had better characters and had the heart that I usually expect from a Spielberg movie. It's got a few. Yeah, if Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg even said, I think, about this film, he doesn't really, really recognize himself in it. Like, like it's not him. Like, he, it's a weird, it was a weird time in his life. He was not in a good place. Uh, it's a, it doesn't have that Spielberg heart that we've come to expect. Sure. He said, he said there, there was not an ounce of my own personal feeling in Temple of Doom. I wasn't happy with it. It was too dark, too subterranean. I thought it out-poltered Poltergeist. Legit, and and it is it is funny to think about it it's interesting to point out the fact that it is existing in the serial universe where you know every episode of the serial can be can be watched just on its own with no prior knowledge of what came before once again last crusade goes into more of what we would think of now as like a serial storytelling which is bringing back characters like a continuation of the original right. universe. It's funny to think about this as a prequel because it's like one year before Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, this <laughs> happened to Indiana Jones. Right, and like right. he, he doesn't believe in magic or you right. know, weird like <laughs> voodoo stuff with the arc. It's like you just went through this insane, like literally voodoo magic experience with yeah. people still alive after their hearts are pulled out, and you drank 
magic blood that brainwashed you temporarily. <laughs> became a zombie temporarily. <laughs> he hit short round. Hey, remember when you hit a kid in this movie? <laughs> I can't. I can't. Yeah. So that all this all apparently happened like just twelve months before he was right. a professor in that classroom. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's pretty wild, and I think, yeah, the the comparison that you brought up, Trisha, is just really fascinating, and it, it's maybe coincidental that it's Indiana Jones and Star Wars made by kind of the same people. Like, there's a lot of overlap, and so I think that is a really interesting conversation. I wish I knew more about like what people thought of it at the time, because you know, if this is coming out alongside Empire Strikes Back and Return of the not Return of the King, Return of the Jedi, <laughs> where it is this like epic saga of like you're following this family story and all this stuff to ha- then have the second episode of this from kind of, you know, the same creators be such a left turn. I think it is, like you guys guys are saying, like a very bold choice that is kind of cool. But I would also imagine there's a lot of like whiplash that happens when when that happens. So, yeah, I don't know. It's It's really interesting. I feel like, again, the problem that I have with it is just the script is not good. It's not. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are a couple things we can talk about along those lines that I think would be interesting. Let's hear them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I feel like there are no choices being made basically ever by the mm. protagonists. Mm. Like yeah. kind of just from the get-go, you know, that that crazy opening sequence that you're talking about, Alex, the bananas, 20 minutes of like all of that is just sort of like a thing happens and then they're just like reacting and reacting and reacting and reacting until they find the village. They're given this sort of new mission and then it's kind of just happening to trick like trigger this thing or somebody's going to show up in your room to kill you and that'll accidentally reveal this like to be clear i do think that at the very least the sort of whole inciting incident of this is a choice where they're like oh you're going to go to the palace you're going to get the stone for us you're going to do all this stuff and he's like okay yeah whatever and then it's the moment where he says the children they took the children and i think you don't really see the sort of acceptance of like well i guess we have to go do this now but i do think that at the very least that is the moment where they could still just go down the street and get out of here you know i don't i mean there's probably not a bus nearby but like (laughs) they could they could just like turn down this mission basically but i think that's the moment where it's like okay we kind of can't do that we kind of have to do this so i think at the very least that's a big choice but otherwise i agree yeah. with what you're saying. Well, and like the sad kid stumbles into the village and right. falls in indiana jones's <laughs> right. arms yeah yeah i guess i don't know what choice what the next choice is in the movie right. after that right <laughs> it's kind of the problem yeah i think that well, is and, fair and just really quickly like like thematically does any of this add up to anything there's there's kind of there's a little bit of father-son vibes with him in short round and very a lot of attention put on this moment with the like the starving sad kid who falls in his arms but is this a movie about indiana jones like being a father figure at all <laughs> kind of i mean there's like some key moments where him and short round like have a connection or he you know hits short round and then 
wakes up and doesn't hit him and hugs him. <laughs> yeah. Like so like there's <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that is my exact question. Yeah. What the, the hell is this movie about? <laughs> yeah. Like right. That is what I want to know because <laughs> Raiders, as we talked about in the last episode, doesn't all the way resolve into a concrete position on a theme, but it is sort of textually all about like Indiana Jones as an archaeologist and his relationship with faith and like the purity of his pursuit versus like sort of the commerce and, and the money and like all of this stuff, the greed that tempts him as it tempts Belloc and all of this stuff. There's enough in there that it feels like it's about something. And then obviously last crusade <laughs> is about something. What the hell is this about? Like she has a great relationship with a kid at the beginning of this movie, mm-hmm. if he had like a bad relationship with Short Round, say, I'm not sure why or why we would want to watch it, but at least that would be some kind of arc, right? That's a little bit of like a Dr. Grant arc from Jurassic Park where right. it's like he hates kids. Now he loves kids and he's going to free them all by the end of the movie. And that's how he like finds redemption in this particular chapter. He loves Short Round. He and Short Round have a great relationship. And then. Continue to. Yeah. Yeah. At the end. And what is, what is Indiana Jones? What in his life has he not confronted that is confronted in Temple of Doom? The black sleep. Sure. Yeah. Come on. Is that the voodoo? Yeah. Zombie voodoo. You know, the most Indian of, of uh, rituals. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, you're you're totally right. There's everything about it is like, I just. You well, have to at least pretend to be about something. Like that's the thing is ultimately like <laughs> James Bond movies, not all of them pretend to be about something, but some of them do and those are the best ones. And both <laughs> of the best like Indiana Jones movies pretend to be about something, like right. at least make a show of it. I don't know. I don't know though. Like that cuz then you have the danger of the just like well, we're a family or whatever, like some right. BS, like yeah. tacked I, on thing. I would rather have it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure Truthfully. that I would. I, this is the wrong movie for me personally to talk about this with, but like I, I would probably rather not ever think about a theme than just like <laughs> see a theme that's terrible. I mean, I think, I think there is something once again, interesting about the idea that this movie maybe is the most, uh, authentic to the old serial mm-hmm. thing, sure. which, which are not worrying about themes. You know, the character is not changing. They're just in this, you know, the crazy savages of the week have them in their <laughs> savage place. <laughs> and like, yep. get away from the savages. Like that, that does feel like what this movie is and isn't trying to aspire to be anything more than that. And maybe that's okay. I would argue that this movie is trying to be about things. Like, to me, this feels like, and this can be lots of projection, but like watching the making of, watching the movie, I feel like good intentions were had by all. And I feel like there are some scenes where it feels like maybe they thought they were talking about something. Like the, the first dinner scene where Indy is talking to the Maharaja and like like all that stuff that's going on. Mm. I feel like there's sort of a conversation about like yeah. what's good and what's not good for people, question mark. I don't really know exactly because I'm 
distracted by all the food stuff that's happening. I never hear anything in that scene. Right. Yeah. But Same. with like subtitles on this time, I was like, oh, they're having kind of like a political like debate and like what is the moral like way to rule people, I think, is sort right. of in there a little bit. Mind control or no mind control? <laughs> <laughs> the thematic debate. Yeah, there's a lot of good writing in that scene. I love the moment where where he says, like, oh, you know, wasn't it the such and such, the sultan of somewhere who threatened to cut off your head? And he says, oh, it wasn't my head. He says, oh, your hands then. It wasn't my hands. Uh, well, well, what then? He goes, it was my my misunderstanding. I'm just like, I love like lines <laughs> there, like There that. are some good one-liners. Right. And, and then, and then just like this very genuine moment where he says to the Maharaja, he's like, have I offended you? Then I'm sorry. You know, and like where the Maharaja makes his point about everything you're saying, Michael. Like there are those moments where you're like, ooh, there is like a real movie in here somewhere, or at least it's trying, or at least it could have been. But then it's just sort of like that stuff gets so lost in everything else in this movie. Right. Is. Well, because I, I, you know, I think when the the kids appear, you know, you know, Spielberg and kids, right? There's lots of, mm. yeah. you know, like the kids have been taken. He's going to save the children. They're working in a mine. Like, I feel like there are these moments that are supposed to have these kind of, you know, emotional swells of, you know, look, we've saved the world. I don't know. It feels like there are individual moments that are played as if they're part of a movie where this means something. Right. Sure. But I think there's just disconnect and not it's not there in the script. So any individual moment doesn't have anything else to connect to. So I feel like that's, I get the sense that Spielberg at least was trying to make a movie about something. It's just that there was nothing there to make a movie about mm-hmm. in a way. Well, Take as one example, Indiana Jones's relationship with Willie Scott. They could have made it about something. You could have, right? There could have been an instant earlier where she comes through in a clutch, mm-hmm. right? Where something happens and she does save him, I guess, by reaching into that hole and pulling that thing. Um, we are but, going to die. <laughs> but like, here's the thing with a minor character. Give them one skill. Right. And make it be a skill that the protagonist absolutely does not have. So if her skill is that she is great at fashion, fine. Mm. Great. They, that's a skill that women have in movies all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, she, she's great at getting rid of snakes when she doesn't know it's a snake. <laughs> okay, but let's say that's what her skill is, okay? Yeah. So there's a scene where they're dressing for dinner with the Maharaja. Indy is about to wear something that actually would completely offend the Maharaja. But she happens to know, oh, you can't wear that jacket here. You can't wear that tie or whatever. You're going to get us thrown out into the whatever. Something where she has a special skill. And Indy's like, you know what? She's actually good to have around. I really appreciate a quality about this person. (laughs) Because a character might have qualities. This is what I'm saying. It would be very easy then... Once have once you have established that there's an attraction based on something. Right. Based on something. <laughs> any attraction based on anything. But if you have it in the text, then you can build on it, right? Then she like comes through again and she's like flirting with him and or make it a thing with Indy where he is lonely and realizes he can't go around adventuring by himself all the time. And like, he needs the support of somebody who can do X, Y, and Z, even that's there for him to talk to. And he's like, you know what? I've, I've been a bachelor too long. I've really been thinking about this and like, maybe it's you cause you're here. And like, just a character reason, even one, 
would be a thing. This is the central problem is that mm-hmm. there's so yeah. much that they just kind of slapped on top and didn't make a part of the actual text, plot, character, all of that stuff that is screenwriting. Right. And so I, I do like the action scene where she does come and save them. Like the spike mm-hmm. scene, I think yeah, is it's cool. maybe the best little sequence. And, you know, they are kind of idiots for getting themselves stuck in there. So I feel like that's a moment where I'm very much on Willie's side of like, like she's a hero right now, like having to go through all the stupid stuff to save your idiot asses for getting stuck in this place. In the so spikes do, room. Right. In the yeah. spikes room that you have in your, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's an Indiana Jones problem. But I feel like the moment for me where I'm like, Oh no, this movie is bad and maybe irreparable is the extended who's going to go into the other person's room like back and forth sequence. Wait a minute. I love that. I, I love that scene so I much. I kind of love that sequence. This Thank time. you. I'm sorry. If you took that sequence out and looked at it in isolation, I think it's like a fine, funny sequence. But I think it's not about anything. Like I think that's what you're saying, Trisha. Is like that's where I feel at the most. Is like this. I feel like this scene should be about like who's going to make the big character change, who's going to cave first. But all they're really like, I don't know what's stopping them. Because I don't know why they're attracted to each other in the first place. I don't know why any of this matters. Like, I think there's just, there's no character arc story reason for any of that sequence to be happening. And so it's just, it feels just kind of like meaningless to me. Correct. And I also enjoyed it this time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like kind of in the way that Brian's been talking, like, I, I definitely give up on this movie having any of the things we're talking about. You know, I, once, you know, her character was only, you know, the goofiest Gimli gags. And that was all she was good for. I had no hopes of any of the things that the movie probably should have done to be a good movie. So I was actually just kind of refreshed during that scene. Like this is, I'm enjoying watching this kind of throwback to, you know, like a talky kind of screwball comedy, you know, right. they, they can't actually show the sex on screen because it's the 1940s. So we're going to like talk around it and, go to the separate rooms and be stubborn. So I just kind of enjoyed it as its own little set piece. I agree it is meaningless and doesn't do anything for anything. But <laughs> in an otherwise in a movie that was otherwise full of gross out stuff and, you know, despair and darkness, I was just kind of delighted to watch this lighthearted, meaningless screwball comedy for, you know, a good five, ten minutes. Well, that sequence does give her a backbone. And that's the only time mm. she gets to, like, mm. really you know, have a spine and be sassy and like dish it back. And I liked it for that reason. It's like, oh, you gave Willie Scott something to argue about. Now, again, it's ultimately not about anything, but you gave her some pride. Whereas in so much of the rest of the movie, she doesn't have any pride. She's just there to like scream about how she broke a nail. Again, I just can't think of a character. <laughs> like there's so few characters I can think of that are just written with less dimensionality or compassion and i mm. like can't imagine why i like, what i mean george lucas was going through a breakup for what pur- <laughs> yeah but for what purpose like even <laughs> from like a basic narrative standpoint for what purpose did you do this to this character is a genuine question that i have and i wonder too you know this time around i was thinking as you mentioned earlier michael about the short turnaround on this screenplay. And I wonder if it's just the inevitable 
result of like I think it's you, just cheap you laughs. Did, sure, yeah. it, mm-hmm. potentially, yeah. And you know, it's it's awful that it's at women's expense and that the movie seems to assume that only boys are gonna watch this, right? That's mm. that's kind of how I feel mm. when I watch right. it, where it's like this joke is for a a 12 year old boy. Actually, a lot of the jokes in this are for a 12 year old boy. Everything from the, the monkey brains stuff. on down. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> like, it's incredibly immature. And the way that the women that the, the, the one woman in this movie is treated feels exactly like that. And not, not like a joke either, not self-aware enough to really justify it. But it also is just like kind of bad screenwriting. Cause it wouldn't have taken that much, like two lines of dialogue to like right. give her some kind of motivation or whatever, something. So yeah, it just feels, it just feels mean spirited. I, well, th- that brings me to the Lawrence Kasdan quote that I thought was so great. Where mm. He, he turned down working on this script. He said, I didn't want to be associated with temple of doom. I just thought it was horrible. It's so mean. There's nothing pleasant about it. I think temple of doom represents a chaotic period in both their lives, Lucas and Spielberg's lives. And the movie is just very ugly and mean spirited. So that's <laughs> that's what he thought yeah. <laughs> about Temple of Zoom. Not wrong. Mm. <laughs> that it, yeah, it, it is unfortunate. That is kind of how I end up feeling about all of it, and it, yeah. it does feel like all the characters end up suffering from all of it. Also, like I, I, they do. I don't know. I feel like there's Indy definitely suffers from all of this yeah. too. Yeah, I, I um, think. To, to end on a, a more positive note, I do think that is also what makes Short Round such a delightful character. Is yes. Because he is so lovely and the relationship is so lovely. There's the little moment mm-hmm. where Steven Spielberg bricked off Jaws, that movie that that guy made, <laughs> uh, where they both like, cla- where, you know, Indy clasps his, hand, his hands mm-hmm. and then Short Round does it too. And then I just love like when, when Indy is under the, the, the black sleep and, and Short Round's just like, I love you, Indy. Like he just says, he's just like, yeah. so, it's so like, cute. Right. Real love between those characters and stuff. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate that the movie has all the other issues that we're talking about because that, that genuinely does just feel like one of the, like one of the nicest relationships in the entire franchise. Yeah, no, there, there is a lot of heart, and it, it, he feels like he would be at home in a normal Indiana Jones movie or another totally. Indiana Jones movie. And so, yeah, I think, like we're saying, I appreciated him a lot more and was sort of just like, he was the person I was like most like following and like wanting to like, is he okay? What's he up to right now? Oh, like, right. he's doing a good job. I'm like, oh God, now there's this he's crazy He's fighting that car- other kid. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like kid battle. Like, yeah. Mini, mini kid I, battle. I also was like, my mind was blown by this like psychotic Maharaja kid. Like how many yeah. scenes he have where he's just being just incredibly bloodthirsty. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then he's, you know, I guess short round figures out the key to, unraveling the blood magic is to whip some fire in your face and to kind burn of burn you. you. And, burn yeah. you? And like you're yeah. snapped out of it permanently done. That was kind of a convenient device. The, the mm. rules, also like, like the magical rules the in this rules. one are pretty all over the place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and just while we're kind of on the topic of like the set pieces in this one, the set pieces are far less sort of actiony than they are in Raiders or mm. in in Last Crusade. That they're more like weird sort of psychological kind of things where Indy is not as active. And I think that's what you identified early on, Michael, where it's like here Indy's under a weird spell. Here Indy's in a spike room. Here Indy's in a minecart, but it's not. 
I guess basically I just miss Harrison Ford doing his own stunts. And mm. I feel like so many of the other movies, both of the other movies and some of the best tiny moments in <laughs> Crystal Skull are, mm. are built around Harrison Ford trying to do a stunt, like, and doing his own stunts essentially. And they're much more like action-y stunt based, character based, like, you know, it goes back to what you were saying about Michael about like, do characters make choices? And the best action sequences are when characters are making choices and ideally choices that are pressuring them into more and more difficult choices as the sequence goes along. And the sequences in Temple of Doom don't feel like they're constructed with enough precision to do that for anybody, especially not indie. And, you know, the lack of like, this it wasn't that physically taxing on Harrison Ford. He didn't have to do that many stunts. Although I think the rope bridge sequence at the end is a real exception. And I think it's yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it really does work. But most of the other sequences, if you don't have your actor like really pushing himself, then is the character really pushing himself? I mean, those things are not always exactly a one-to-one, but you you get the sort of gist of what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, you know, Harrison Ford did injure his back for three weeks and so that, or like six weeks or something. So they had to shoot a bunch with stunt people. But I think that's not even like the point of like no. what you're, like I think what what I also experience is that, yeah, he's he's very passive around the action sequences and in the action sequences. Like there's so much of them like, oh, we're going to turn a corner, we're going to watch a thing, then we're going to get caught. There's a lot of that in The Last Crusade also. That's mostly what Indiana Jones does actually, I think, is get caught watching things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like the in Raiders, there's the action scenes are revealing character and we're kind of getting to know who Indiana Jones is. And I feel like in Last Crusade, there's... You know, he's being watched by his father. So there's kind of this other like character dynamic happening when we're seeing him do these things. And in Temple of Doom, there's just not as much of that. I think there's some fun moments with him and Short Round watching like their duo and how they handle things together that is really fun. But yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm learning anything about the character of Indiana Jones so much as I'm wondering why they built a roller coaster in this mountain. <laughs> so, first, okay, first of all, why isn't there that exact roller coaster at a Disneyland? Like, this is the most obvious ride. I mean, like, just make a roller coaster. Yeah, look like a roller coaster. Because the Indiana Jones yeah. like, I, ride. I, I, want, I, want, I, want an, but I want an actual roller coaster, like Minecraft roller coaster. That's all, that's all I want. <laughs> okay. So that aside, I, I feel like that sequence reminded me of, like, Star Wars prequels where – you know, the pod race has no narrative function except for like the end of the pod race. But as a child watching those things go really fast room room <laughs> for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or however long that freaking scene is, was amazing. And I think the minecart scene is one of those sequences that is just so kinetic and so insane and so gonzo that I just have to respect it in that kind of prequel way for, for just being so nuts and so mm-hmm. it, it, it reminds me also of like the forest chase and return of the jedi like yeah it's just, it's yeah. just got mm-hmm. that like extremeness to it the speed is way too much things are happening way too fast the dolls and the carts are like <laughs> yeah. around way too but it's it, all of it's too much but i kind of love it for that reason there's definitely always a sequence i enjoyed watching like i would yeah. i would basically watch the movie to watch that and to watch the rope bridge at the very end sequence because i think that is like you were just saying, Trisha, a really tense sequence. And it's really, Definitely. like, great. Like, I feel like this movie does end on one of the best 
indie moments. And that is such a, like, I feel like that is, again, an indie moment of what am I going to do? I'm trapped in this crazy situation. I'm going to cut the rope bridge. And like, that's the it's way awesome. out of it. Yeah. And that's so, it's the yeah, second that's choice so fun. The movie. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he does make another choice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so great. I love uh, Kate Capshaw's like, oh my God. Like yeah. when she realizes, like, I'm just like, I'm so with her. So yeah, I, I do love that, that final sequence. And it's a fun, like, like fighting on the side of a cliff with like all. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like the movie does end on a really fun action sequence. Last mm-hmm. thing about the minecart chase. I was watching this time, Brian, because our last episode, you, you mentioned there's a rule where every time mm. Indiana Jones smiles, Something bad's about to happen. <laughs> right. That happens like ten times. <laughs> like he smiles frequently and always before the next bad thing happens. Right. Your your rule held up very well. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I think that this is just something that like we kind of have to accept, which is that people who have really good ideas also have really bad ideas. Right. So it's like the sure. minecart chase was originally from the Raider script. And a lot of the other, like the gong rolling and stuff like that, that was originally in the Raiders script. And and when right. we talked about when they were working on the Raiders screenplay, that they were just kind of like stringing together their best ideas of sequences where it's like, and then Indy's going to do this thing and how do we get him there, right? And then they were just kind of like writing through the set pieces and action sequences. And the ones in Raiders are great and like, they really work and they come together and, you know, we, for all the reasons we talked about. And there are some really great ideas in Temple of Doom, is the thing. There actually are really great ideas mm-hmm. here, I think, where it's like, well, what if there's like a, you know, minecart roller coaster thing? And like, I like the idea of Indies at a nightclub and like he gets poisoned. He has to get the antidote, but the antidote is like, you know, flying all around in the room because who knows who has it, but then there's yeah. diamonds and then the ice bucket spills and there's like ice and diamonds on the floor. <laughs> right. But it's like, those are, that's dead on in terms of like tone and ingenuity. That's exactly what these guys set out to make. And it's a good idea. Like if that actual, like those moments happened in either one of the other two movies, we would praise them forever as being like really great moments of like ingenious screenwriting and just sort of like fun, inventive action writing. The fact that they happen here where they're bogged down by other sort of, you know, story problems is regrettable, but people who have good ideas also have bad ideas. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, okay that movies like Temple of Doom exist to remind ourselves of that fact where it's like no one human is a god and movie making is not a a perfect formula or like some kind of easy solution. Making movies is really hard and the same creative brains that brought you that thing that you love so much are capable of having really bad ideas. And it's like, Right. That is okay. (laughs) Like, that's just sort of the nature of art. And it's definitely the nature of where art meets commerce. And that's what movies are. So, Temple of Doom exists and it's indie canon. And here we are. Right. (laughs) That's that's beautifully said. Um, And I think that that's also why discussing movies is a thing we enjoy doing because I think that like 
you know, nothing drives me more crazy than when someone's like, oh, what'd you think of this movie? And I'm like, well, you know, I thought the characters were like maybe a little like uh, underdrawn and stuff, but I thought the set does. And then the person's like, nah, I liked it <laughs> or whatever. Like I have like, here's my one word response to like this thing that took hundreds of people years to make basically. It's like, it's good. Or, or it's not, it was, it's terrible or whatever. Like just this like one flat, that's it kind of thing. And movies aren't that movies are complicated. I mean, all art is obviously is just like some stuff is good. Some stuff is bad. Some stuff is good and could have been better. Some stuff, you know, whatever. And like, it, it's not just like no movie is perfect and no movie. No, is, some movies are perfect. Like, okay. <laughs> I forgot about Jurassic. Thank you. <laughs> also from Spielberg. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think these are all really great points that I think lead very nicely into what lessons we're going to take away from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Brian, do you want to start us off? Well, I'm very glad Trisha brought up good ideas that are executed poorly because my lesson is actually about, it's actually something positive about Willie Scott. Because uh, <laughs> I was thinking about her character while watching this movie because again, I've just, because I grew up with this movie, she's just always been there to me. So I never really... It's like when other people complain about her, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, I get your problem. But to me, I'm like, but she's she's the person in this movie, like the end. And I was thinking about the the three Jones girls that we have in, in this trilogy. And I think that like, if you put, if you could say what they are in one sentence, or at least in relation to the protagonist, Marion is his adventure equal right? Like she is, she's there. She lives in this place. She's drinking people under the table. She's like not, she's scrappy. And then Elsa from Last Crusade is his intellectual historical equal. She knows all the like stuff he knows. Like she sees something, she's like, oh, that's, that's fourth century, you know, pagan, whatever. And he's like, that's, (laughs) that's right. And I think if you could put, say one thing about Willie, it's that Unfortunately, she's not his equal in either of those ways, which is which is the the most unfortunate thing about her character. But the one thing she is is just sort of the opposite of Indiana Jones. And that is a bad thing in terms of, again, like the the issue with her being the only female in this movie and all that kind of stuff. But Kate Capshaw literally said she's not more than a dumb mm-hmm. screaming blonde. <laughs> it was the quote that she said about Willie. But what it does <laughs> offer, and this is, you know, screenwriting 101 stuff, but like what it does offer is just a ton of conflict. And and that's kind of why I do love that hallway scene and that whole sequence is because it's just here are two characters who are so different from each other, but they are attracted. Again, for whatever, for reasons, just they're, they're pretty people. Probably that's the only reason, but like, as you were saying, Trisha, like it does, she does get a backbone in that scene. And so it's like, she is concerned about this thing and he's concerned about this thing. And I do think that like the actual execution is her screaming a lot and complaining that she cracked a nail and that kind of thing. And that sucks, right? Like, that's just, I'm not at all saying the execution of this is good, but I am saying like, it's, it is a very interesting thing in this trilogy to have a character who is, just the opposite of Indiana Jones, because almost every character is sort of like on some light, on some equal playing field with him, the villains and the, the the love interests and all that kind of stuff. And it's sort of like that odd couple rule or whatever, where it's right. just like, but what if you put the absolute anti-Indiana Jones in a room with Indy and then he has to like spend an entire movie with her basically? I think the that I'm guessing that was a part of the kernel of the idea but then again, 
idea good, execution bad, because then it's just her screaming a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at at the in the best moments in this movie, I feel like I'm able to see Indy through her eyes, which I think is the kind of thing that could have afforded even more and like could help define our protagonist even more. It's like seeing someone from a totally different world from Indy, like you're saying, like see how someone like that reacts to all of the crazy shenanigans that he gets into, I think is uh, a lot of fun and that there was definitely potential there for for more of that to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and also just like the fact that her values are so different, like, mm-hmm. and, and, they're, and they're sort of shallow values, I think, to us, which is, again, why the execution is, is bad. But it's just like, a lot of it is like, she's like, I don't care about this thing, right? So it's like, we are, we as the audience are meant to care so deeply about what Indy cares about, but she's like, but I'm not interested in that. And it's kind of like, there is like something kind of refreshing about that almost of like someone who's like, but what if I'm not interested in this thing? It's like, oh, I didn't consider that because everyone else in this world is like, oh my gosh, it's the Nahachi. Like we have to have this thing and da da da. And and to like just have someone who's like, but I don't care. It's like actually an interesting, weird foil for for this. If universe. only she had a real reason or a real argument on her yep. side of the theme, like <laughs> yep. give her a chance, right? Like if, uh, I don't know, if that's what you're trying to do, then give her a real chance to articulate why Indy might be wrong about X and, and really engage right. our right. brains about like, Hey, Indy lives his life by this very questionable ethical code. Maybe someone should challenge him on it. Who has like a totally different, worldview great but like what about a moment of real challenge yep yeah no totally agree (laughs) again execution bad yeah alex what's your lesson we basically already covered it but i just wrote themes are important and i like steven spielberg movies with themes you know we we made a whole video about jurassic park and, and how many great themes it has and just how thematically coherent it is every character every you know, kind of plot turn is on theme. And it, yeah, it was just very disorienting where it's like, okay, so now we're going to spend the second half of this movie basically in this underground mine temple place. It was very big set piece about pulling a dude's heart out of his chest, which traumatized me as a child, mm-hmm. uh, burning them alive. Like, what is like, what is all this for? Like, like, was that just, is it was all just for titillation? Like, we're just going to show you some crazy stuff and horrible stuff. Like in the other Indiana Jones movies, there is at least a reason for set pieces to exist. They seem to be part of a larger Spielberg whole. And this movie has a lot of stuff in it that doesn't feel a part of anything. And so, yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good case study of, you know, why, why do certain movies feel unsatisfying? You know, Last Crusade, you know, we'll talk about it next week. In comparison, is deeply satisfying to me. In that coherent Spielberg, this is kind of perfection way, and it's really fascinating to put these two movies side by side. And I think a big part of what feels wrong about Temple of Doom, in comparison for me, is just the lack of any kind of thematic cohesion. So it really does get boiled down to just like a series of almost, you know, just what do the little boys in George Lucas and Steven Spielberg want to see? You know, here's the gross out scene. Here's the really intense, like almost like horror movie scene. Here's the roller coaster scene. What's, why is it all here? I don't know. 
mostly because we just wanted to do all these things, I think. So theme, themes are good. Themes are good. Even in your like goofy action movie, themes are good. Mm. Yeah, and that kind of ties into my lesson also, which is, you know, uh, earlier, Trish, you were like, what is this movie about? And I feel like that sums up a lot of how I feel about this movie. But I think also watching it, I rewatched part of it today, watching the behind the scenes. I think like we were just talking about, it does reveal how hard it is to make a movie and how movies are not a perfect science yet. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) But that, yeah, like from the same creative minds for reasons. And we like, we can throw out lots of reasons. People say things in interviews, like we can infer whatever we have no idea. And I think the fragility of a, a movie and what makes it good and what makes it not good is like there. Right. Like, turn yep. the style five degrees that way or five degrees th- this way. And maybe this movie is the best Indiana Jones movie. Like, so I, I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when discussing movies, like you're saying, Brian, like there is a lot of value to like get out of like this and deepen your appreciation and also remember how imperfect a creation process every movie undergoes and we react again like you're saying Brent so strongly of like this movie was slightly this way so I have declared that I hate it and it has right, ruined right. everything when maybe it's actually just a little bit different and there's lessons to be learned by zooming in and paying attention to all those little things that can make a movie different right it also just reminds me of how many classic movies have different edits and different cuts that we have access to Mm -hmm. and how those edits completely change our experience of the films. It's like that was Mm -hmm. even in the last stage of the process, you can make a totally different movie by happenstance of your editor or what the studio wants, or there's so many factors at play and one edit can be a classic movie. That's the best of all time. And one edit can be trash. Mm -hmm. And they're the same movie theoretically. Brazil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go buy the Criterion edition of Brazil and watch the Love Conquers All 90-minute cut that the producer made. Wow. And proof. Cool. And Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, this time around, I was really just thinking about screenwritery things and why I feel so lost in this movie. The experience that one of you described about, like, I didn't remember anything about this, except I remembered this part and this part and this part, but not how they're connected. I feel like that was my experience of this movie as well. And I felt that way again when I was watching it. I was like, how did I get in this scene exactly? Um, <laughs> right, right. Which is how, yeah, the movie just has this overwhelming feeling of like, and now we're here without a lot of connective tissue. And that is a problem. And I was thinking that, you know, a driven protagonist covers a multitude of sins. Just give your protagonist a really good motivation and a really clear goal. And we basically, that's all we need. And so the problem with this movie is that the goal doesn't show up until 25 minutes in when it's like, they took our sacred Mm -hmm. stone and you're like, okay. But that's not personal to Indy, right? I mean, they kind of try to make it personal to Indy with like, they took our kids. Okay, okay, okay. They took your kids, great. Right. 
But still, it's not that personal to indie. The other two indie movies, Raiders and, and Last Crusade, have like, I've been looking for this thing my whole life. And here I am in my mm-hmm. office in the University of Chicago, and I have seen an opportunity, and I'm going to travel have a, halfway across the world to go get that thing, because I want that thing, and it means something to me personally. That's a really easy but clean construction that helps us follow what the movie is about and why we care about it. And this movie really lacks that. And we lose Indy's motivation so often in this movie, I think. Like, how did he end up here? Why is he here? The coincidences are a bit much is also a thing. You know, lots of thoughts on how coincidences work and can or should work in movies. But like, oh, you found the, if you just push this statue on the boobs, then you get into the passageway. What, how? And like, he looked how around that, a lot. How was that connected <laughs> to the guy trying to choke He's him? like, how did he get into my room? Never mind the fact that you weren't in there earlier. So the door, the window, I don't... Mm, right, right. I, I didn't think sure. there was a necessity to solve the problem, yeah. To be fair, trying to rationalize too much of any indie movie is Absolutely, absolutely. So, like I said, I'm leaving the coincidences over there, but I'm just saying we pay attention to them less. We don't bump Mm -hmm. on the coincidences as much when there's a really strong motivation and a really strong protagonist uh, who has a clear goal. And one of the most egregious things that this movie does is take away Indy's agency at one of the most crucial yeah. moments of this movie, where it's like, and now he's a zombie. Mm-hmm. And without a thematic reason for doing so. Like, if your whole point is that, Indy, you're actually not this dissimilar from the way that these people are exploiting children. What an idea that would be to explore right. with the scene where Indy, you know, in short, doesn't know who Short Round is. That would be really interesting if the movie were at all interested in that. But it is not. And so just make it clean and clear why your character is in any scene ever. Just give a character a really clean and clear motivation. He's here to get the damn arc. We talked about that, right? That was my lesson from the last movie. It's like after the (laughs) midpoint of the movie, the arc went that way. Okay, that's where I'm going because I'm just after Mm -hmm. the arc. And here Indy is just like, why are we, what? At all, in any point of this movie. Temple of Doom. <laughs> it is interesting that for, I think, all, all three of the other indie movies, you can quickly be like, oh, it's about this thing. Half of the time it's in the title, but it is that was always a thing that I remembered about Temple of Doom. It's like not quite remembering what was the thing he was trying to get. And then when you see the rocks, they're like, oh, those are crazy rocks. Okay, interesting. <laughs> like, whoa. Uh, but it is, yeah, interesting how it does, like you're saying, kind of fall By the way, out of side. focus. Yeah, as, as you're going through. Well, I feel like there's a lot of things that we've brought up here that I'm excited to follow up on in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yep. <laughs> I think we're going to have a lot of fun with all of that. I'm I really am excited about it. But first, we have to talk about The Last Crusade. We have to? No, no, week. we get to. We get well, to. Yes, yeah. yes. It's a privilege. I'm excited about all the things. So, yeah, that'll be next week. I'm very excited about that. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? I'm going to start because, again, I feel like my what am I watching sort of connects to what we've been talking about. Mm. So I watched Velvet Buzzsaw. The 2019 film. Okay. Uh, oh, 
Dan Gilroy. Dan Gilroy. Ah. Netflix, Netflix film. Yeah, as it, like it came up in a list of like thriller movies you should watch probably that are on Netflix. And I was like, okay, I, you know, it's the Nightcrawler team, right? It's Jake, it's Renee, it's Gilroy. The, mm-hmm. the cast is like pretty amazing. Tony Collette, Natalia Dyer, Davey Diggs, John Malkovich, Billy Magnuson. Like there's a lot this movie has going for it. And it is not good, but it feels a lot like what we've just been talking about, where like a couple little like dial changes here could have made this movie a very different experience. The same people that can have great ideas can maybe have bad ideas or good ideas that are executed not well for any number of reasons. And so it was just a fascinating experience watching it and being like, I feel like there's a lot of good happening on the sidelines and around this movie, but very little of it is in the actual movie. But it made for a very fascinating experience. It's tonally weird and confusing in a way that, again, on paper, I think is really interesting, but in practice kind of falls apart. It's not sure if it's a satire or a horror movie, and those two things conflict a lot of the time, but it's really interesting. So I don't know that I can, like, recommend it but like kind of like if you want to like see what filmmaking is like most of the time like watch velvet buzzsaw (laughs) and see like what can happen (laughs) Um, anyway yeah so that's what i was watching trisha what have you been watching so i'm gonna tell you guys a quick little story which is that back in 2009 i was 23 years old and i was approached the by the, that's what I've been watching. <laughs> my my screenwriting mentor at the time uh, approached me and he was like, "Listen, I have been asked to write a pitch for a Jungle Cruise movie." And he was like, "I do not have any interest in doing this actually. This is not my cup of tea. My screenwriting mentor is a biopic writer and writes a lot of historical dramas." And he was like, I don't know why they asked me to pitch on this, but you're 23. Are you interested in this at all? And I was like, I indeed am. And so uh, he asked me to write a pitch for a Jungle Cruise movie for him to pitch to Disney, which I did do. And I came up with the best Jungle Cruise concept that I could and had a lot of interesting characters. I had a plucky female protagonist and I had a wisecracking male love interest for her who could deliver all the puns that you might expect from a Jungle Cruise movie. And there was an action comedy essentially, you know, set mostly in um, South America. And anyway, they didn't make the movie that I came up with a pitch for, (laughs) but they did make a Jungle Cruise movie down the line. And it it does have a few (laughs) things in common with uh, with what I pitched back in the day. Mm. I mean, I didn't actually pitch it because I was nobody. I was 23. But my mentor pitched it to them. And you know what? The movie they made has a lot in common with Temple of Doom in some ways. And it is a very fun... If you just like action-adventure movies and... Um, you know what? Actually, it's it's a little bit like Temple of Doom, but it's a lot like Pirates of the Caribbean 4. So if you like the fourth <laughs> parts of the Caribbean movie, Jungle Cruise is for you. So get out there and enjoy it, basically. Like it's got yeah. some supernatural stuff. It's got some wacky ideas. We're just like, what did I even just watch? How did that end up in this movie? And it does have Emily Blunt being delightful. So it is, in my opinion, worth a watch if you enjoy this kind of very splashy adventure 
journey. Cruise. The lighter day pirates <laughs> movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Three, three, four, and five. I feel like it's really most like Pirates Four, um, whichever that one is called. So there you go. On Stranger Tides. I I that's a thing I know. Off the top of my head. Yes. That might Did be the I one. That? I don't know if I, I watched that one. That's four. Yep. That's, that's four. Like, yeah. Well done. Rob Marshall, right? Right. Am I right, right. Am I right about that? Yeah. You're we right are not that. pirates for experts, is yeah. what we have learned. <laughs> but I have but I have the best memory of us, which means even though I saw it once and completely forgot it, I remember what it's called and who directed it. But what I do want to say though is that as I was writing my pitch for the Jungle Cruise movie back in the day, I was trying to find a way to honor the ride, like at, you know, as best as I could, being a a real fan of the ride myself. And I do think that the movie does its level best to honor the ride also in in its own way. And I think it does actually a pretty good job of doing that. And there's lots to like about it. Does it all hold together? Eh, probably not. But if you don't really care about that from your movies, then yeah, Jungle Cruise is a yes from me. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Cool. All right. Brian, what have you been watching? Well, I'm stealing Alex's A24 mojo this week because I know he and I both went and saw, not together, but uh, The Green Knight, which is uh, A24's latest movie directed by David Lowry. And uh, it's it's Dave Patel as Sir Gawain, one of the Knights of the Round Table. It's based on a 14th century poem of, of the Arthurian legend of this magical green knight comes and he challenges anyone to land a blow against him with the stipulation that then they have to meet him at the Green Chapel in one year and they have to accept the blow back on them, basically. So Gawain accepts the challenge and he becomes a hero for the time being, but obviously with the understanding he has to go to his sort of his accept his fate. And then a lot of the movie is the journey there. And the cool thing we've talked about with like adventure type movies is the sort of episodic feel they can have. And there, this definitely has that feeling of like the Odyssey or Chaucer or something where it's like, here's all the little mini stories along the way that at best are thematically connected to what the character is dealing with. And at worst, you're like, it was that, did that need to be in this movie at all? I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, as you would expect, if you've seen it, 10 seconds of the trailer, it's just a fever dream of emotion and mood and music video weirdness. And there were times where I'm like, <laughs> I'm so on board with this. And other times where I'm like, what's happening? And sometimes where I felt the same two emotions at the same time. And yeah, like I said, on the lighthouse episode, I, I'm not crazy about a lot of the sort of a 24 e type insane art pictures that are coming out lately, but I'm so, so happy they exist just because I just love weird experimental things that are trying to do very heavily thematic uh symbol symbolic like type stuff and just put you in a crazy mood that other movies aren't trying to do um so i'm just i'm happy that they're there and uh i i definitely for one viewing i recommend the green knight absolutely just to put yourself through this experience and see it in the theater if you can because just in a space where you can be just sort of totally with the movie alex <laughs> oh yeah all i'll say about it is that i'm still trying to figure out what i even make of it uh, right it, you know i it's i also love a24 for putting out these really interesting art house pictures with decent budgets so they can kind of go epic at times mm-hmm. and green knight is an interesting case where 
I feel like it's close to being a more accessible A24 film. Like they do have some movies that come out that are straddling that line between art house and more mainstream commercial. And I, I tend to, I love when movies can ride that line where they, they're pushing a mainstream audience to new places and yet still giving them like a story to latch onto and to be with and a journey that is comprehensible to, to follow. And I think the green Knight could have done that and was close to doing that, but chose not to do that from in my experience, at least I think there was so much steeped in symbolism or metaphor that maybe required previous knowledge of the poem or just rewatching the movie a bunch of times to, to kind of decide what you make of it. Mm -hmm. And it was frustrating to me because I think it was close to being that middle ground kind of an A24 movie, but chose not to be. And I think I, I just, I just more personally lean towards if you can make, if you can land that middle ground, if you can make a movie that everybody can watch and like on one level, but it offers so much more depth below that level. That's like my gold standard of you, you won. And yeah. I think David Lowry could have done that. And he chose to kind of keep it in the, on the art house side of the street. Right. So I was a little bit frustrated because I was like, ah, oh, you're so close to a thing that could be that middle ground. He just didn't quite do it. And I'm curious because there was a different cut of this movie ready to go in 2020. Mm. It was supposed to premiere like at South by Southwest and the pandemic happened. And I think that, and then David Lowry spent the next year re-editing it how he wanted it to be. And I'm very curious if that original edit was more, you know, studio directed to be in that middle ground mainstream a bit more, or maybe it wasn't, I'm not sure. But I'm just, as we're talking about different cuts of a movie can make it a whole different experience. And I'm, I'm, I'm now curious what that original cut was. It was like entirely done. It was ready to premiere. And I, I wish a 24 would let me see it. <laughs> Very interested. And Alex, uh, I know you watched something from one of our favorite sponsors, Mubi. What did you watch? Well, I was very delighted to see that the Ryan Johnson movie that first made me fall in love with Ryan Johnson is now streaming on Mubi. That is not Brick or Looper, but rather The Brothers Bloom, which is kind of the, <laughs> I don't know, ugly stepchild of the Ryan Johnson uh, <laughs> filmography for no good reason. I think people just didn't see it when it came out in, in the same way that Looper was kind of a thing and Brick was this kind of indie breakout moment thing. The Brothers Bloom, you know, it's it definitely hasn't aged super well as far as it came out in 2008. And it was, you know, for me, it was peak like film school brain Mm-hmm. kind of movie like he is directing this movie so hard look at the style <laughs> look at the music look at the cinematography look at the quirkiness but it's it, it is a very delightful movie and it is just so much fun to see ryan johnson being his playful best and mm-hmm. just loving cinema so much and just mm-hmm. having a ball so it, it's it, it's a genuinely delightful ryan johnson just kind of Cinema pleasure romp. extravaganza. Romp, exactly. <laughs> so I highly recommend checking that out. And it, it hasn't been on many streaming services. It's always been kind of just for rent. So it was really fun to finally see it on a service like movie. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen it since you had me watch it several, many, many years ago. And I, I want to see it again because I think it, I would probably appreciate it more this time. That's our girl in it, right? Like, yeah. it's got everybody. Rachel Weisz. Rachel Weisz. Yeah. She's, 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 like, amazing and adorable and wonderful, and I, like, love her character so much. My yeah. dog is named after her, Penelope. Oh. Oh. Nice. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> That's really cute. 
Awesome. Well, yeah, this episode is sponsored by Movie, obviously, which, if you don't know, is the curated streaming service featuring exceptional films from all across the world. We've talked a lot about how they have lots of art housey kinds of films, but they also have films like this that can be more mainstream. Like, I think what's cool about Movie is that it's not just films from all around the globe, it's all kinds of genres and from all periods of time and like all kinds of things. Like this is part of their funny haha collection. Like sometimes they <laughs> kind of have themes around the collections that they're doing. Love it. Which makes it fun. They have lots of community features also where like, you know, they write a little blurb about why they've chosen each thing, but then you can also see like reviews and conversations that other people are having on there. So movie is great. It's kind of like your own little personal film festival. And they've been supporting the show from the beginning. So Always grateful to them. If you want to get 30 days of great cinema for free and support the show, just head to movie.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring this episode. And this has been our conversation about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Such an interesting, like, second stop on our, you know, the map <laughs> montage as we travel across <laughs> yeah. the different the Indiana Jones. Going. Yes. And it ends in a crystal <laughs> It does. It's going to be great. I'm excited. But our next stop is The Last Crusade. So we will see you all next week for that. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Snyder. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. bye bye